Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 22, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. And Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. Once again, we bring in Pat Malloy to talk about some player development. Uh, One of his clients that we've spoken about in the past, but it's always good to get an update on a player's development. And Brant Clark, we spoke about his brother last week in building an NHL player. Now, Brant's a bit of an interesting case. Um, obviously offensive defenseman, offensively minded, uh, does some things in with the puck that other defensemen just don't do or won't even think of doing or may not have the cojones to do in that respect. So I give him credit for that. Like there is a a part of his game is very much experimental, which I think if you're going to do it, you better do it now before you start getting into the American Hockey League because that ability to do that lessens every, you know, jump you make in terms towards the NHL from that respect. So, Pat, let's talk a little bit about the continued development of Brandt's game as you've seen him through, obviously, Don Mel's Flyers and, you know, Barry Colts and, you know, some time with the LA Kings, some time with the Ontario Reign um, at, you know, the World Juniors. So he's done a lot in the last year and a bit in terms of jumping around some different leagues and different teams. And those are different experiences. So then those are things that you have to speak to your client about. And like, what did you see? What happened? Let's go over some things because those are all potential learning lessons for, for Brent as he moves forward. Sometimes lessons take a little bit longer to implement into certain, into players, you know, and they have to, sometimes there you need a little bit of reflection once the season's over for you to sort of like, go over all the things that uh, a player goes through. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, those will be things that we'll, we'll definitely touch on, you know, once the season's over, it's been quite a journey, you know, coming through COVID and playing overseas and, and, you know, missing out on world juniors, then making the world junior team, you know, spending some time in the national hockey league. It's, it's, it's been quite a microcosm of experiences for all these young players, but, you know, for him specifically working through a, a fairly significant injury uh, and coming back from that, uh, having it, you know, impact a little bit of his time in training last summer. Um, and yeah, you, you speak to, to some of the things he can and can't do. He's certainly a risk reward player. And I think for him, you know, the plan going forward is certainly going to try to, you know, acclimatize him to the things he's going to need to do in order to be, you know, successful at the National Hockey League level. Okay. You know, last time we talked on air about Brent, we, we broke down Nogni syndrome and his skating mechanics and, and how he has to function a little differently. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is do you feel that there uh, are deficiencies with Nogni? Uh, that can be seen outside of skating. And what I mean by that is primarily when he has to physically initiate because his center of gravity and how his center line operates is obviously a little different than most players. Uh, do you mind touching on on that aspect of him in terms of that hard skill and how he has to apply his leverages a little differently? 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be a big summer in terms of building his body for the National Hockey League and attacking, you know, some of those areas of development are going to be key because, you know, a great part of his summer last year was sort of knocked off coming off of, you know, an injury that sort of prevented him from doing certain things for a period of time that unfortunately as a young player you kind of rely on to, to build your body. And so, yeah, for, for him, I mean, some of what we see from a, a knock need perspective is, is it's it's certainly easy to get narrow. It's certainly easy to be um, less than um, as stable as you'd like to be in the footings that are required. I think at the National Hockey League level, when you think of things like boxing out, when you think about small area play um, down low, below you know the hash marks in a Western Conference hockey game. There's going to be things that, you know, will we'll take away because you'll get trunk leaning and doing some things that, that aren't going to work against the best players in the world. And so those are areas of development that we'll certainly look at and, and try to maintain, you know, the, the, the building of his posture that is going to allow him to you know, successfully do the job as a, as a National Hockey League defenseman. Pat, do you find, I think in Brandt's case, we look at him jumping between multiple leagues. You know, NHL, American League, OHL, World Juniors, that in some cases, the, a player can get away with just talent alone. And the lessons that he's, you know, had to absorb, you know, it's like drinking out of a fire hose in some respects. And in some cases, players are just trying to survive um, and trying to lean on their strengths and worry about just trying to get through it. And then it takes some time to really kind of like, pull back after the season's over and then go through all those scenarios. And like, as you had said before, it's like having those conversations with Brent is what did you see? What did you feel in those situations so that you understand what happened to him at the NHL level, what happened to him at the American league level, what happened to him at the world juniors, and then what's going to happen with him more importantly, you know, in the playoffs in the OHL. I mean, cause those are really the critical I thought junctures for his development. Cause so, you know, we look at him, he's so offensively talented, but we forget sometimes how young he really is. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the game is certainly different at all of those levels that, you know, you mentioned in terms of, you know, the rope that he'll be afforded to apply risk, um, you know, in, in having him develop his risk mitigation skills and, you know, often with offensively gifted players or players that have a mindset and a processor like he has, you know, he, he's going to try to see what he can get away with and the things that he can do that have made him successful to this point. But as you touched on earlier, you know, those may not necessarily be the types of things that are going to work at the National Hockey League level. So, you know, when we have the chance to debrief, that's certainly going to be something we talk about is, you know, what differences did you feel from, you know, playing in Barry in the Ontario Hockey League where you can get away with some things, cheating in certain areas that your, you know, your talent level will let you get away with where when you get to the best league in the world, you know, people aren't going to bite on, on, you know, a little faint one way or the other, the way they might in the Ontario hockey league. And you're not going to have that sort of talent drop off that you would have at major junior, you know, versus the NHL. So, you know, those sorts of things will, will certainly be dissected. We'll talk a lot about, you know, where did you find um, strength mobility, um, you know, angles, all those sorts of things became something you recognized you wanted to improve or you needed to improve and, and really break it down that way. Because, you know, for a player like him and, and especially the way the game is now, you know, it's, it's about being appropriately physical, but attack angles are really the key to it as a defenseman, creating angles that allow you to get puck possession back. 
uh, and not get yourself tied up and, and, you know, exhaust yourself in something that if you took the right angle, you know, to close a playoff sooner, um, you know, you've saved yourself for other things. So it's, it's going to be a, a process for sure, where we look at it and say, all right, how do, you know, the experiences we have, dictate where we're going to try to take this thing in terms of, you know, maximizing his trajectory as a player. Pat, when you look at him turning pro, you mentioned mitigating risk. He loves to carry the puck because, you know, he loves to handle the puck. Uh, do you feel that one of the big aspects in terms of trying to develop a more pro style game will be rely more on the playmaking aspect? It's there in spades. Just make sure you, you one touch process the puck when you can stretch the length. That way you don't have to rely on those aspects where there is some deficiencies. 100%. I mean, and I think we see that a lot with a kid leaving major junior that's, you know, a puck-centric player that likes to have the puck on their stick. And the first thing you'll start to see is, you know, there's less and less opportunities to carry uh, when you get to the National Hockey League level. And it's all about, you know, especially the way defensemen play today, it's moving pucks and joining and finding soft ice and, and creating backside support on plays where, you arrive as a next layer of, of, of attack and, you know, his half court game is certainly very strong, but as you, you know, as we all know, you know, the half court game and things like power plays and, you know, they're well dissected, you know, well coached teams recognize the tendencies the players are playing against. And so it'll all be about evolving and recognizing where I might, you know, wander over with a puck on my stick and, and not really be confronted um, you know, you're going to get against a, a pro level National Hockey League player. It's going to drive you to your forehand, take your mobility away and force you into a bad decision. So there's going to certainly have to be some things that adapt that, that you know, will help at the National Hockey League level. Because, again, the things you can get away with in, in the Ontario Hockey League are going to be vastly different. And uh, we want to be ahead of that curve for sure. You think in terms of his defensive abilities at a pro level that were angling and, and his stick placement are going to be the absolute key for him to be successful um, because it may take some while for his skating to catch up to a level that maybe he's happy with. 100%. And, and even the best skaters in the National Hockey League, you'll find, you know, they're not running around and being physical. They're, they're taking proper attack angles with well-executed stick checks. I mean, stick checks might be the most important check in the national hockey league. If, if your angles are appropriate and your stick checking is on par, you know, you're going to save yourself um, a lot of physical taxing uh, because you took proper angles and you used your mobility appropriately not to not get tangled. And so for him where, you know, he may not move like some of the best in the national hockey league, he processes at a high rate. So with that, we've got to leverage strengths and strengths, meaning recognizing angles and, and, and ending plays before they become problematic to him um, is, is going to be a huge key. And, uh, you know, not just for him, but any, you know, any young player entering the national hockey league use of stick and proper angles is, is just critical to survival at that level. If you're going to be a contributing everyday defenseman. Well, Pat, thanks for coming on the show again. Always appreciate the insight of of the prospects and players you work with and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks for having me. That's Pat Malloy. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this.
Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're going to do a post-NHL trade deadline retrospective, and we're happy to bring on Eklund from Hockey Buzz to talk about a specific topic in terms of how some general managers view and value trading prospects and picks. And the reason why we're discussing this is because it's a a bit of a seminal year in terms of the number of first round picks that were drafted uh, were traded away in this year's draft comparative to the past. And, you know, I've been following this type of trend for the last 15, 20 years. I've been talking about the value of draft picks and prospects on this show for the last 18 years. So this is nothing new to me. It just happened to become a little bit of a cyclone. And now the rest of the, you know, media has sort of jumped onto it. So I wanted to bring in Eck to talk about some of those, those aspects. So thank you very much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. And it's, it's, I'm thrilled to be on what I think is the best show on XM. And I've told you that. So thank you for having me. Well, let's, uh, I appreciate that. Let's talk about, how some general managers view and value trading prospects and draft picks, particularly because it's changed so radically ever since the salary cap was implemented because the valuation of prospects and picks have changed uh, because there is uh, factors involved in terms of uh, how long it takes for prospects to develop uh, the value of that prospect based on the probability of the, the historical success rates which i could easily go over but we we won't go over at this time and then the individual 
valuations and probabilities based on every individual team because you can use historical numbers, but then each team on how they value and how efficient they are at drafting developing are two radically different things. We've seen teams at the top end that are 40, like Pittsburgh Penguins in the salary cap era, which are a 40% plus efficiency. And there's other teams that are in the 16 percentile range. So it's not equal. It's all based on the different variables. And that's what some people may not quite, you know, really grasp is it's not this black and white binary system. It's, it's really not. And you're, you're definitely right. And I think that the, one of the issues that people don't realize is that every market has big factors involved with it. Like you can, if you, if you can just separate Canada from the U S on one like grand level and like the way Canadian fans look at prospects versus the way American fans look at prospects is a totally different thing. And um, you know, you, I mean, as you've seen before, like Canadian fans, the, the, the NHL draft is like a, is a big party for Canada. Everybody's getting drafted out of the little hometowns. So like, and they, they love the whole concept of the draft. They love prospects. They're willing to wait for prospects in the U S some U S markets, the original six markets are, you know, including Philadelphia in that market that, you know, it's, it's lightweight to a degree as well. They're willing to wait, but there's other markets where they don't, they, they don't want a prospect. And, and they'd also rat then they also have to, it's a big factor to get, get into the playoffs, getting into the playoffs, succeeding in the playoffs is a lot of money for some certain markets that they have to make. They don't make a profit if they don't make it to the playoffs. There's teams that are in that spot too. You know, and that's fascinating. And the fact that what prospect is and what we try to do on our show is really be, uh, you know, baseball prospectus for hockey and help people yeah. understand the value of prospects and then yeah. the value of draft picks and how that whole process works. Cause in hockey, we, we draft players at 17, 18 years of age. This isn't the NFL where you're yeah. getting 21 or 22 year old players, sometimes 20, you know, in the NFL. So it's more akin to to baseball in terms of that process. Yeah. Sure. So when you're talking with certain general managers about the discussion of well, you know, you traded that draft pick away or that prospect away. How do you like, you have those discussions like, well, how, how do you put value on these pr- prospects? How do you put value on these draft picks? Not just their personal value, but how the organizations that they're trading with puts value because it's not a, you have to understand what the other side, how the other side values it because that's a negotiating ploy in terms of your Bantha. Very much so. And, and, and like you say, even, even though you have different situations in the U.S. and Canada, you have teams like, let's go with the St. Louis Blues, for example. What the Blues just did, um, and they've done this before, this is not new for Armstrong to trade away players while they're in still a playoff run. Like they did this with Shattenkirk years ago. They did this with Stastny recently. Um, and no no other teams really, if they're in the, if they're on the bubble or in the playoff run, they usually will will play it out with their their you know, their older players or the players that are you know, ending contracts and like that. St. Louis never has. Why? Well, St. Louis made the playoffs like 35 years in a row. St. Louis has a solid basis and they don't have to worry about making playoffs. They make money. They're okay. So they're willing to do this. And the fans are, you know, more mature hockey fans in some ways. They're willing to do it as well. Not always happy about it. Um, and like we, we saw last, we saw this immediately when O'Reilly was traded, you know, <laughs> there were some issues in that room right away and Berube was dealing with it. Um, but yeah, St. Louis has that. That, you know, that's that's one team that does things very di- – I think they do things very differently than anybody else, actually. You know, I've not, there aren't other teams that tr- would trade away, like, those kind of players in the, when they're still in the playoff run. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that sometimes the narrative gets built is you're either a buyer or a seller. 
You're yeah. either loading off hard to rebuild or you're yeah. buying to make a run. And it's not black and white. It's not buying. Rebuild, rebuild and retool is the most misunderstood. Yeah, it's completely thing. ridiculous because what yeah. you really should be looking at is what's the cost value line of my players and right. my prospects. Like, right. And there's a point where the the cost and the value line, you don't want it to drop. Obviously, you don't want the value right. to drop below cost, but you get towards right. neutral and you recognize, okay, now is the time I have to move this player, regardless of what they've done for me in the past, regardless of yeah. what success, yeah. it's time to move on. And that's right. what they did, obviously, with Ryan O'Reilly and yeah. obviously what they did with Vladimir Tarasenko because yeah. it was absolutely necessary at that time. And I think I give the St. Louis management a lot of credit. They're the one one of the organizations that I track who I think they really understand cost value lines in terms of economics of their they players. Really do. And here's the thing. People are saying, okay, they're trading away those guys. They're rebuilding. Well, no, they're not. They're rebuilding. not rebuilding. Blues are, the Blues are still a good team. They still have a solid core, even with trading those players away. Um, and here's the other thing. The rumor that was happening right before three o'clock. And it was one of those rumors on trade deadline day. And it was one of those rumors that, you know, is setting up maybe more towards the future. Uh, Cause a lot of things that are, a lot of things that are discussed at trade deadline day end up coming to fruition at the draft or later on. Right. Was the on concept of the blues moving Pareko and two of the first round, they picked up what four, four, four first round draft picks in this draft in the trade deadline, three, maybe something was crazy. Two of the first round draft picks and Pareko for um, Eric Carlson. Now that's what, what happens with that? Did they pull that off at the draft? You know, or they pull it off later. That's obviously not a team that's rebuilding. That's a team that's retooling or whatever you want to say. Um, and that's how he looks at it. He, look, he he really wants to get those drafts, draft picks, but he also doesn't want to take his team back to zero. So right. that's the well, they, they, were, they were in on Chikrin, which is another you know, the same kind of thing. As far as I'm concerned, you should be constantly retooling. Yeah, no, you constantly. are. Like every day you are analyzing how you're retooling yeah. your team constantly. Yeah. That's what we do all. That's what you should do all day as a manager. Like and as a future general manager yourself, I mean, you're going to be in the situation where you're going to be okay. What do you want to do? And I've talked to guys about. This. They say, "I want my team to be in a position to win." That's all you can do. Keep getting them in position to win, and then you have to hope for goaltending, puck luck, and 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 health injuries. Right? Yeah, right. Health and puck luck and goaltending. But if you put yourself in the playoffs every year, and if you know you get into in the position to win, that's all you can really do. And the reality is, you know. We saw way more than that this this time. We saw people throw away draft picks in the East like they were going out of style. You know, a friend of mine joked and said, is the West folding? You know, like all the players that were moving from the West and taking it to the East. Um, it was it was that's another thing we should get into is the cold war stuff, stuff like that that went on. But and how that plays into it for sure. Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, look, the number of draft picks were traded and people said, oh, are they undervalued? I'm like, no, first round picks are never undervalued. No. But it's also you have to understand what's the probability historically for that first round pick to turn into a player that plays more than 200 games. Then what's the probability of the yeah. range, if it's a forward or a defenseman, of where they play? Then, like, you have to also understand, like, what the value is for one team isn't the same for another. So if you're a really top end team, how'd you get there? Yeah. You drafted and developed very well because that's... Right. They, so they're less concerned about trading the first round pick because they know their staff has the capability of replicating players sometimes in the second round that have the similar value of what they've traded away and right. what, and they're trading it to bad teams. So, yeah. but there's a reason why these teams are bad because they yeah. don't draft and develop well and they don't asset right. management well, otherwise they wouldn't be bad teams. Right. And they, and they build, and, and what happens when that happens is, you know, they, the tanking thing, is way worse than you think because it really builds a, a a feeling of losing around the organization, a feeling 
like what people don't realize is how losing affects an entire organization more than you ever would imagine. Like I, I would go into the Philadelphia Flyers, for example, when I used to, when Ed Snyder was here and I would have lunch with him once in a while. And I go into that office and you could, I, I wouldn't have to be paying attention to know whether the Flyers were on a winning streak or a losing streak when I walked into that office immediately, just from the secretary it's, on back. It's, it's palatable. It's, it's incredible. You could see it right away. You would know. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to go out with Ed next week. Well, they just lost four in a row. That's not the best time to be going out with Ed. You know, <laughs> you would feel that, you know, and it's that, that affects everything from the people who sell the tickets all the way down all the time. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's one of the things that people in the industry may not realize, or mostly fans uh, yeah. may not realize some media people that how, incredibly connected you are in terms of the number of general managers and assistant okay. general managers you talk to and go out to lunch with on a regular basis, people in the NHL head office. And as we head off to break, we're going to talk about owners next. So yeah. stay tuned to hockey prospect radio. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back right after these messages. Instat hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There's no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're speaking with Eklund about a little bit of retrospective from the NHL trade deadline. And this topic for this segment is how some NHL owners view and value trading prospects and draft picks because we previous segment we talked about the general managers and some viewpoints of that owners are entirely a different beast because they look at it from a a different viewpoint and they understand business so they look at a draft prospect or they look at a draft pick and say okay how long does it take for this player to come into the nhl how much resources do we have to put into this to make this happen what's the utility No, no, they may or may not make that distinction or they may not get that deep into it. 
but I assume they do. Uh, I've talked to a couple owners and some of them do, uh, the ones I spoke to anyway. So what's your perspective when in the conversations you've had with owners about when trades start to come up around the deadline or even before that about we're going to give up first round picks, we're going to give up our top prospects to do X. Yeah, they will always almost always do that. <laughs> They'll always almost give up their first round draft pick. It, it's it's owners are guys have usually made now there's different there's different categories of owners. We'll get into that too because they're they're guys who usually have made money on something else. They're not they're not doing this to make money short term. They're doing this because their franchise will sell for more than they bought it for. They just have to not lose enough money in the in the in the process as it goes along, right? So it's not it's not about you know but it's also not they're usually not their main gig, which is really funny because we look at the, like this is like that's usually maybe not their biggest thing, or it might be now. But their biggest thing was something else for many many years. They retired out of that, and now they're doing this. Um, the smart ones hire good hockey people that can communicate and then get out of the way. Um, but some of them are very active, and that's hurt a couple teams big time. And then some of them are older, and they want to win now because they're going to die. And it's a hard thing to sit there and say, but you know they're going to eventually. You know, they realize that there's not they don't have time to watch a prospect develop. <laughs> you know, to them, it doesn't mean anything, you know, like they they got to get and that's and I, I go to Vegas is a perfect example. You know, like Vegas, you know, we had a big fight on my podcast um, about the fact I, I told myself and I told you today, I said, I have no question in my mind, no question in my mind that Jonathan Quick is going to be on Vegas. There's absolutely no it's 100 percent true. And why was that? Because he's Jonathan Quick. And remember, in that market before the Vegas Golden Knights existed, they were Kings fans. Right. So they watched the Kings win Stanley Cups. That's how much Kings fans they were. And they watched Jonathan Quick win those Stanley Cups. So when he's out there and available and you're going into the playoffs, even even if your goalie was doing really well, even if they just needed a backup, they're going to get Jonathan Quick. Is it logical to do that? Is it logical to give up prospects or, you know, they didn't give up much to get him, but is it still logical? Probably not logical. He's not playing that well right now. He's doing that, but he's still in that market. The owner sees he's Jonathan Quick. My fans right. love Jonathan Quick. Yeah. Well, it's the other thing is you even look at who, uh, who so Platner out of San Jose, you yeah. know, he's an older gentleman who as you know, is looking at the clock and going, I don't want to do a rebuild. Like yeah. I may not be around in five years or seven years when this right. comes to fruition. And right. what if it doesn't? So let's just win now. So I understand, like, I understand that perspective. Well, I was at Snyder in Philadelphia for a very long time. You know, right. like it was like he, he, he was, he was, the Flyers were, and now as a fan, there's different levels of that, right? Like you can sit there and say, okay, I want to win now, of course, but I also want, I don't want to trade away the future, but I know at least my owner, if he's older, he's trying to, I knew he's doing everything he can to win because he wants to win as much as I want to win. And that matters because there's some teams that are basically owned by organizations, which is a totally different realm, right? Um, they're basically owned by corporations almost, you know, like the flyers are that now where they were, you know, with, before it's started now so that, so that the, uh, the way the Flyers handle things in Philadelphia is a lot different than they do with Ed Snyder there. Um, so, yeah, that happens, too. It was fascinating. When you have conversations, you're sitting down to lunch, uh, to lunch with owners. Yeah. You know, and you talk to them about, hey, you know, you give up so much of the future. In three or four years, this is going to come back and bite you right in the ass. <laughs> and then, then what are you going to do, right? Because you can only kick the can so far down the road before the bill comes due. And, you know, you live in a house of economics and economists, and it's sooner or later, the bill always comes due. I've said that to them, but you know what they'll say? I'll figure out another way to do it then. I'll figure out a different, like, and that's, and that's when it gets to that point. We'll but it almost doesn't, out. like, historically, that 
generally doesn't really happen. It eventually, it does lead to collapse, right? There's no, you can't, you can't, and, and, and I mean, it's just it's like governments, you know, they can't keep borrowing money, they can't keep borrowing money. Um, you know, eventually it, you have, you know, a recession or a depression because eventually this is going to happen, right? But they believe that that's not going to happen in my lifetime, probably. And they believe that it's, we have all these old politicians in America that say, this is not going to affect me. And they, and it's the same kind of thing that you see here, you know? So yeah, the, the owners, and, and and make no mistake about it, the GMs know what their owners want. They know whether or not their owner is willing to be patient. They know whether or not the owner says, we have to make the playoffs this year. I might have to sell the team if we don't make the playoffs. There's teams like that too. We don't if we don't get at least a couple games playoff money, which is like five to ten million dollars per game type of thing, depending on the team. If I don't get that extra ten million dollars, we lose we lose ten million dollars. I got to lay off some people in the office. Um, the GM's looking at that. That's that's also going through the GM's head here as he's doing things. Well, um, it, that's the tough spot. It's interesting because um, this proverb always comes back to me when I have conversations with GMs. Is you know the boss isn't always right, but he's always the boss. He's always the boss, right? And, and there's and there's nothing you can do about that. If that's what they want, right. you have to fall on the sword for your owner, right? Absolutely. And you do your very best to strategize around what his vision is. And I think one of the important things is to communicate to him really clearly and precisely in bit the language of business. Here <laughs> yeah. is the probability of this yeah. happening, right? These are the steps we're going to take. But here are the repercussions down the road. As long as you're aware, this is the most likely scenario. Because what ends up happening is four years down the road or five years down the road, then a new management group comes in. Right, right. And then they're starting all over again. And they're cleaning up well, they're cleaning up the best. And they don't know everything that, you know, and you'd see, it's easy to sit there and blame a GM for a trade. But, you know, and sometimes, yeah, they, sometimes the owner's just out of the way and the you know, GM just does it. But sometimes the, the owner's like, yeah, we got to make that. I need that trade. I need to get this. I need to make some excitement. I need to create. I need to sell tickets. I need to get some revenue in here. We have to do that. There's, it doesn't matter what we do in the future. We're not, it's not going to affect us because we're not going to be, there's not going to be a future for this franchise in this city. If that happens, I've heard people say that actually. Right. Um, and that's kind of crazy too. You know, we're going to be, we're going to have to move this team to go back if we don't get into the playoffs this year. That well, happens. But, and the interesting thing is when you, when you look at it from that <laughs> perspective, I don't think sometimes as fans, uh, they recognize the level of normative and coercive pressures that are put upon the general managers uh, by, by the owners or what the owners feel from the marketplace. Like yeah. when they hear it, hear it from the fans on TV and radio or in, in, you know, inside the arena when the game is on, like, don't think for a moment that doesn't affect them. Oh, right. It does. When, when they got, when the, yeah. the fans are like rushing around the rink with <laughs> pitchforks and torches and they're angry. I mean, you can or use Philadelphia. Fire someone, fire someone, fire right. someone. There's chance. Those chances mean something. They mean a lot. Because sure. this whole thing, if those guys don't, if these people stop buying tickets, they're sunk. And they know that. And, and the reality is they have to keep them happy or at least give the perception that they're moving forward. Even if it's not, it, it, there's a lot of that that goes into it too. Like a perception of things is very important too. And the owners at the end of the day, some of them are just, some of them stay all the way. Some of them are just fans, you know, there's a lot of fans. They're, the owners are just fans and they want to win. Um, and they want to win too. And they're like, who cares about the future? But in the general manager, meanwhile, is not going to get another job in another organization because he made this crazy trade that he shouldn't have made. He's right. looking at his future too. Well, that's the one thing the general managers are really good about is they explain yeah. themselves to each other. Yeah, hey, they do. Hey, owner wanted to do this. I did the best deal I could. Um, I'll, and publicly, I'll fall on the sword for the owner. 
and you have no choice but to do so because right. if you wish to work in the industry again you can't you can't diss an owner right yeah you, you can't can. you know it's just you it is and, what it is owners, even though they don't all get along which they don't and then the, the most incredible thing about gary bettman is the fact that he's gotten them to get along as well as they do all the owners because these are these are 32 people with vastly different agendas and um you know <laughs> vastly different life, lifestyles and every difference i mean there's no reason in the world that these 32 people should have agreed to have to miss a whole season just so we could get the salary cap but they did actually you know, and, no i I agree. I think it was absolutely necessary to get. A well, I agree cap, too. Right, but, but the the sales job that Batman had to do to get certain owners to do that to buy in, yeah, yeah, was ridiculous. And well, anyone who wants to just Batman, you no one else. It was very, very I, <laughs> get that, other people. That I think. Bad, I think it's, I, you know, I, I, yeah. you know, I I defend Gary to fans a lot yeah. because yeah. they just don't quite they don't understand the amount of like. Right. pressure he's under but oh also God, yeah. what all the moving parts that him and bill daly have to deal with on a daily basis like this is a moving puzzle piece it and the variables and change all the time and they both they both have they're a great work relationship between two of them bill daly and gary bettman um they they both have strengths and weaknesses but bettman at his core is a fan like when he was doing stuff on xm radio he was fun to listen to he actually gets the score when you went when you're going to gary gary bettman's office there's a giant lego stanley cup there which is really cool <laughs> and then there's also four tvs like along the wall and they are the mlb network the nhl the nfl network the nhl network and you know and and you know the, the nba network he's got he's he's paying for gary bettman his job is competing against those people well Eck, want to thank you very much for coming on our show great insight and look forward to speaking to you in the future love to anytime shane you're the best that's Eklund from Hockey Buzz. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics the junior prospect hockey league is western canada's newest elite developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level the jphl features professional coaches and skill development coaches along with comprehensive practice game and academic schedule allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs to learn more and see why the jphl is the ideal choice for your student athlete and family visit juniorprospectshockeyleague.com Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. 
We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're happy to bring on Jason Bukla in our sports and our scouts perspective segment. The topic this week is a super fun one, is evaluating power forwards and weighting the scarcity. Because power forwards in this generation, in the last 10, 15 years, are rare. And when they come up, and especially in the first couple rounds... You know, you can get a little bit excited, a little like glossy eyed and rose colored glasses when that happens, because if you hit on one, Jason, boy, does that change the trajectory of your franchise? And we look to guys like Tom Wilson in Washington. But then there are times when you can get caught in that. And this was one of the biggest lessons I learned as a scout is that. One of my biases, and Russ Cohen was laughing at me as I was talking to him coming back home from Boston, is like, you know, you've hit on power forwards and you have missed on power forwards. And I had to learn my lesson of how to weight them appropriately and really ensure certain attributes, skills, and at mental, emotional attributes were in place. Because you can look at the ones that miss and they're missing those elements. So I learned my lesson the hard way. I got kicked right between the legs hard a couple times. <laughs> yeah, it's not an exact science, as we know, even across the board. And, and when you start to get into, I guess you could almost, not quite as extreme, but you could almost pigeonhole a, a true power forward who's going to be an impact NHL player into the same category as a goaltender, couldn't you? I mean, there's kind yes. of becoming, they're kind of becoming unicorns in, in the way the game's played today. Obviously, we know it's a track meet. Um, but having said that, all the teams are looking to add, or it seems like they're looking to add, especially this year, more of that character and beef into their lineup, especially in the Eastern Conference of the of the league um, come trade deadline. And there's no more glowing example than Tanner Janot in the trade to Tampa Bay. And, and I Timo, guess what I would And say, Timo Meyer. Yeah. Timo you know? Meyer is another one, you know, power, you know, heavy. I, you know, they're different, those two, obviously, but uh, Timo is a heavy player in the offensive zone. Um, when we get into the Tom Wilsons and the Janot and even the Lawson and Krauses, um, I guess they're all, they all have a little bit something different to add, don't they? I right. mean, it's, they do. It's, um, they're, they all have like different attributes. Um, it's not an exact science, but teams overpay for these players when they become ex- established national hockey league players compared to drafting and developing them. You know, and that's the interesting thing. So, you know, I can go back and I'm totally honest with, you know, guys that can burn you. So if you look at, you know, and you can miss um, diagnose and put a label on a player that he's, yes, he has a power forward body, but he's not a power forward by style, right? Like I remember the conversations around Jake Furtanen for that matter, or Julian Gauthier for that matter. Mm. And because they have a power forward body, didn't really pay play entirely in junior as a power forward style as you would attribute to the NHL. And you can get caught in that of labeling them that. And then once you label them that, then you can really get yourself into trouble in that respect. And, you know, we, we look at, and I did the same thing with Clint Costin, you know, um, and I learned my lesson with that one too, as well. There were certain attributes that I didn't, I kind of glossed over more than I probably should have and it come back and cost me. So it's just that that's where I think you have to really look at power forwards really carefully as they're coming into the draft. And that was the big debate we had with uh, Tyler Boucher, you know, as well. 
Um, and we'll see what happens with him because he's a very young player. There's lots of like uh, runway left for him. But that's, you know, the, you know, the arguments and the discussions I had with Brad about these particular players over the last three, four drafts. Yeah. And, you know, you could put the Nakushkin in that category too, couldn't you? Like before when he was in Dallas, you know, it was a big rig and he's obviously figured it out in in Colorado. I mean, I, you know, I just keep coming back to the goalie model in regard to these players, because I don't think they're one contract guys for the most part before they really figure out how to establish their role and how their style of play is going to impact the roster at the NHL level. So you know, it's taking them a little bit more time to establish it. Clem Costin's a great example. I mean, I remember tracking him when he was even an underage in Europe, and he's always been a huge human. Like, he's been bigger than his his class, right? You know, he's been a big, strong guy. Um, and again, you know, taking some time. Um, the one that you pointed out there, Gauthier, I think that one's a fascinating one. That one really, um, in the 2016 draft, we had him kind of in the middle of the uh, first round-ish. And... Um, you know, that one right there is a prime example of a player that um, had like his family background was athletic. They were all, you know, weightlifters and in great shape. And, you know, you started to try and paint the picture. But to your point, um, you have to be careful. You have to make sure that you identify the true skill attributes and then let the, the picture kind of paint itself out because it takes time. And don't pigeonhole him because if you tell your general manager he's going to be exactly this and he ends up being a little bit more of that, uh, to your point again, I keep coming back to it, that's that's where you can look like you don't know what you're doing, right? Yeah, and one of the things I always found you know, interesting when it comes to power forwards or power forward like like the bigger body players, particularly when they're playing in juniors or in, even in minor hockey, all the way through – They've always been physically dominant, so they can always rely upon it. And then the moment that they because they've never had to learn how to use leverage properly or to roll off checks properly or to cycle properly because they've never they've always been physically dominant. And then the minute they get into the American Hockey League, then all of a sudden this is a massive wake up call because all the defensemen know how to defend against that. And they're all big, strong men, too. All of a sudden, uh oh, I don't know how to handle being pressured from behind. I don't know how to roll off checks. I don't know how to cycle properly against a guy who's just as strong as I am. I don't know how to use my, like my body effectively in those situations around the net. Cause I could just basically do whatever I wanted against those other smaller defensemen. And then it's like, it's such a shock to the system. There's a two year learning curve, sometimes three or sometimes even four. They never learn it of figuring out how to do that. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right, and I'll double down on that point. I'll, I'll say that if you draft a kid uh, out of Europe, or even if he's a draft plus one, draft plus two, and you've got time on him coming out of Europe with his development curve over there, the the, the amount of time you own the player, um, if you draft him and you forecast him coming out of Europe to be a power body, um, as you all know, it's it's one thing to be a power body in Europe, and it's it's a totally different thing to be a power body in, in North America with the amount of space we have to work with and the type of game it is. So there's a lot of moving parts there. The the guy that that I'm most proud of, and I think that uh, we did a nice job in Florida of identifying Scott Luce, Aaron Janelle, myself, and the rest of our staff, uh, Dale Talon, was um, like Lawson Krause for what we needed as a team and we were going to wait on him to get to where he was going to go. Um, he's he's probably the guy that that is – I would say that we hit on him 
in relation to his identity because we thought that he was going to be big, strong, play fast, have the IQ to be used in a variety of different situations, um, keep the uh, opponent honest, I guess, is the best way I can I can put it yeah. to you, like a new breed kind of heavy player. And But you know what, Shane? Like it, it wasn't an immediate thing. He goes back to junior. You know, he plays in the World Juniors. You know, like it's a journey for those guys. And uh, But now, if Lawson Krauss is on the market to be moved at this past trade deadline, can you imagine what he would have got in the trade market? It would have been way more than a just one first-round pick, as we know, because Tanner Janot went for what he went for. Yeah, it's fascinating because – and that's how you have to weight their value, but you know, it's going to be a long track record. And I think it really depends also who you have in your player development department and then who he works with in the summer. So to, to really recognize, okay, to be a successful power forward, yes, these are the things that you did in junior, you can get away with, but that's not going to happen. So we need to like start building your habits now, because by that, like if you start doing that, forming new habits in, in the American hockey league, especially if you're coming on the CHL as a 20 year old, like that's such a shock to their system. It takes so much longer for them to try to figure out. And then you're not figuring it. That's the American hockey league. Yes. Allows for, you know, that type of growth, but not like it would, if you had an extra year in junior um, to figure that out before you had to go turn pro or even two, depending on his age. Well, in the American hockey league, it's just a hard league. It's a meat grinder. Yeah, like those guys, uh, it's hard for those guys. It's hard for anybody. Like people, the American hockey, some some players, some some high-end prospects, even middle-of-the-row prospects, they actually perform better in the National Hockey League than they do in the American Hockey League. It's just it's just so hard. It's not quite as organized, obviously, and um, it's just a hard league. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, – scouting, as we all know, isn't an exact science. Um, when we start to get into the power forward game, I think we're on to something in regard to the comparison to the goaltender curve as as, uh, as we talk about the power forward curve. But everybody wants them, so you can't forget about them and you can't, uh, you can't underestimate uh, the value of having them. But you, you said it best, handing them off the player development we were fortunate, like we had Brian McCabe, and he's been around guys like Gary Roberts a lot of his career. And, you know, I mean, like those good player development guys take things from other people. And uh, not only was he a great pro, but, you know, and we, we had Chris Pronger there at the same time as well. So these were things that were, you know, uh, good for our our development pool. Um, and I hope that in a short stay with us that it, uh, that it helped out Lawson Krauss. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the the interesting fact it factor is that I put – um, offensive defensemen in that grouping too because they're like the true offensive defensemen are really rare in the NHL so we we can get caught all glossy-eyed and fall in love with that pure skill from the back end because if you get one it's a home run hit um, if you get a power forward it's a home run hit and to me it's just about weighting scarcity because there's so few of them do you overweight them and give them too much value on your list because of the style they play and just it's just it's a careful balancing act that I think a lot of people outside of the industry don't really recognize. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm curious to see what happens with this draft class and the draft class after that, and watching power de- power forwards develop. But Jason, want to thank you very much once again for coming on the show. Always appreciate the insight. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Shane. Uh, Jason Buchler, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these important messages. <laughs> 
Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hour 2 and brought to you by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. We're speaking with Patrick Williams, covers the AHL for NHL.com and AHL.com. Patrick, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, as we roll go around the American Hockey League, uh, let's talk about Grand Rapids Griffins. And one of the things that I really like, and we talk about the necessity of stability in the American Hockey League. And what I like is the fact that Ben Simon's been with Grand Rapids for eight years and Mike Knubel has been with him for nine years. You know, I, you know, I don't think we'll ever see, you know, those long tenured American League coaches like you know we've seen in san jose's organization you know yeah. you know for example I mean, you're never going to see these 25 plus year type of coaches anymore because everybody likes to push yeah. themselves into the into the age into the nhl and we understand why but boy does that type of coaching stability ever make a difference in terms of how you develop players and what the expectations of players are and the system stays the same and the expectations are the same, you know, from like the Detroit Red Wings all the way down. And for me, when I'm looking at an organization, that stands out to me. Well, I think the stability, you know, there's a lot of reasons, one of which is, you know, you get everybody on the same page and it's it's like anything. Like if, uh, if you're playing on the ice or if you're dancing or whatever, right? Like if you try to know where the other people are going to be, it just uh, – made things a lot more smooth, a lot easier. And so that's the first thing. The second thing I think is this is where teams can get into trouble sometimes is when you're changing coaching staffs every year or two, you're just getting that much more um, kind of you know, differing uh, opinions, different, you know, uh, you know, you do this. No, 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 you do that this year, right? Like, you know, you just – you need to get the same message, consistent messaging to a player year in and year out and – get those level of expectations uh, and reduce that, that, um, that get to know you period that comes with a new coaching staff, right? Like, you know, that you, you spend half the year just trying to figure things uh, out, you, try, you know, you know, what, what does this coach want from me or what does this player expect from me if I'm a coach? So like the more you can streamline that, uh, the better off you are. And you see like Steve Irisman, he came from Tampa. He had that same setup in Syracuse with Ben Groove. So, um, you know, a lot of the same kind of uh, DNA going on there with, with the Red Wings and with Grand Rapids. You know, and, and to me, uh, it makes a, a large difference in terms of not only your prospect development, but also if you're a veteran in the American Hockey League, like, you know, that franchise has stability. Like there's no, you know, change year after year after year. It's just that is it's a, I find Grand Rapids a safe landing spot if you're a veteran. Like, you know, we're going to be treated properly. You know, it's going to be a first-class organization in terms of, you know, what we get. And on top of that, it's there's clear direction. Like, there's no illusions. There's no drama. Like, it's pros pro kind of organization from that standpoint. And to me, especially if you're an agent and or, you know, and you have clients that are, you know, like these more veteran type of American League players – that's a place where you want to go because you're going to be treated fairly, you know, and you're going to get, you're going to get an opportunity to play in the NHL 
because they're going to give you that as a reward. Like, so if there's an injury, all right, let's give this guy a couple games up in the NHL. Then he's going to be able to fill this role for us for a couple games, get him some NHL money, get him like, you know, get him some love and then send him back down. They, no, yeah, they do take care of players, veteran players, uh, very well that way, number one. Uh, number two, if you just think of the personalities kind of running things there in Detroit and Grand Rapids, you have Steve Eiserman, you have now Sean Horkoff, and you have Ben Simon. All three of them are, are extremely direct um, personalities. Yep. 100%. Either, either not, there's not a lot of gray area. If, uh, there's no gray area. Any of the three. <laughs> exactly, right? Like in Ben Simon, you know, I know him the best, and extremely straight shooter right like there's no there's no sort of uh hesitation there's no there's no hedging there's no ambiguity it's like we need you to do this this and this in order to reach the the nhl and you know players i think respond to that right and and certainly if you're a better player too like it's um it's a good solid market you know the team is stable off the ice uh fan supports there so you're, you know you're playing in front of good crowds every night so a lot of veteran players it really is one of the most popular destinations uh, for those guys as well let's talk about the Hartford Wolfpack next and now they've gone through some changes obviously in the last couple of years you know management changes so that filters down into the American Hockey League filters down into coaching changes and staff changes, you know, from that standpoint. So obviously Ryan Martin is now running the American Hockey League for the New York Rangers and in Hartford. And so talk about that transition period. And there's going to be changes in terms of how obviously Chris Drury and his staff want players developed and what their priorities are. And that's going to simply obviously change down, filter all the way down to the players, but also that's going to impact, you know, what veteran players perceive about the American Hockey League in Hartford as well? Well, they brought in Ryan Martin from where? Grand Rapids, right? right. So I'm um, trying to kind of think, uh, bring in a little bit of that that that, that blueprint, that formula uh, to Hartford, which uh, has been kind of a real, real trouble spot for the Rangers for years, right? Like they've gone through different coaching staffs. Uh, that hasn't made it all work. Uh, they've churned through veterans. I mean, this was a team that for four consecutive years in a row traded their captain midseason. I mean, right. so – that's what does that what does that say to the players? Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly, and it, it, it's a situation where so the the Wolfpack have not made the playoffs since 2015. Um, that is a long time to go without getting your players' playoff experience, and also just it's not even just the playoffs themselves. It's you know, those late season March April games that are high pressure, and you know you look at last season where the Wolfpack just had a absolutely incredible collapse uh, down the stretch. Um, you know it was. It's really hard to watch almost. Uh, you know, right. There's a team that was in the playoffs. They, they were pretty secure and, you know, just week by week by week, you know, they lost, they lost, they lost. Before you know it, they missed the playoffs. And, you know, so I think this year they, they really tried to take uh, some proactive uh, approach there. You know, they right. very active at the NHL trade deadline, getting help in for Hartford. So you look at, uh, you know, even with the Patrick Kane trade, you know, so they bring in Adam Clendenning, you know, a good solid age right. veteran. Uh, as part of that deal, they they brought in Will Lockwood, um, you know, real solid guy, you know, coming in from Abbotsford. Uh, Jake Lecision came down on waivers. Uh, they've had Ryan Carpenter there there for a while. So they're really trying to give, uh, you know, Captain Johnny Brzezinski and then the people that were already there, give them more support uh, so they can pull this team into the playoffs. They're in a, a tight race again this year. And you got to get these young guys some 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 Playoff, playoff dates. Right? Like, you know, you look at like Dylan Garan, uh, you know, Garan, I mean, like 
you got to get that young guy, uh, get him into the playoffs and let him experience that, that, that pressure, let him experience, you know, the higher level competition. So uh, it's a real big uh, goal uh, for the Rangers really as an entire franchise uh, to, to get the Wolfpack some help. And, and you saw that at the deadline. Well, and that's just funny when I had a conversation with, with Ryan Martin, um, obviously with other people in the organization, it's just about stabilizing the American hockey league and that franchise. And he gets to go back home because, you know, for him, Connecticut's mm-hmm. back home. Um, so it fit both things from that standpoint, but it's, and you made a really great point about taking, who can we bring in as an assistant general manager to run the American league franchise that has been an organization that's had consistent success and they've had stability in terms of messaging and coaching staff and continuity. And I think that's, I think long-term, I don't, I think the Ranger fans won't really look at it because who looks at the American league franchise very often, but really Mm. that's going to be a real catapult for this organization. They're going to be, you know, a competitive team at the NHL level, but down below, you know, that's where you start putting those building blocks together. Right. And in a couple of years, they're going to need some push from below. And if sure. they don't have continuity from down below, you're never going to get pushed from below. Yeah, look at Boston and Providence. I mean, that, yes. that's the model uh, for 30 years. And every year there's that that churn. A couple guys coming up from Providence who can fill in. They don't need guys to come in and fill in, you know, you know top six roles. But you need guys that can fill in at the bottom six or the bottom, you know, deep pairings or backup goaltending, that kind of thing. So, uh, And it just creates a culture of competition. And so – they haven't had that with the Rangers for a long time. They haven't had guys in Hartford making a push, keeping the guys at the NHL level, you know, on their toes. So yeah, uh, the more they can do that, um, you know, it really is a recipe. If you look across the, the top top teams across the NHL, they all have that element of uh, their their setup in common. Patrick, thank you very much for coming on the show. Always appreciate your insight of the American Hockey League, and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thank you. That's Patrick Williams. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. 
Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back and powered by Instat Hockey, often the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're speaking with Mike McMahon about the college hockey playoffs that are going to be are underway now. Each conference is a little bit different in terms of its timing. So there'll be some semifinals in there. There'll be some more semifinals that get pushed to the 17th and 18th. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about really about the intriguing matchups that are happening through college hockey. And Mike, thanks once again for coming on the show. We really always appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me back. This has been good. So let's uh, let's talk about some intriguing matchups right off the hop. And the one that sort of jumps out to me and I know jumps out to you is Ohio State versus Michigan. So as it will play later this afternoon, reason why I find it intriguing is because both those universities dislike each other <laughs> at a really high level, regardless of the sport. So, and I think, you know, hockey is no different from that. So as you look at that kind of matchup, what jumps out to you? Because to me, it's going to be, how does Ohio State contain Adam Fantilli? How do they do that? Because this is the best offensive like all round game that I've seen out of a college hockey player in a long time from a freshman. Honestly, yeah. as much as I, and then I saw Devin Levi play this weekend in Boston, as great as he has been, and he's obviously a Hobie Baker finalist. I don't know how Fantilli in the end of the day doesn't win the Hobie because he's a freshman. Yeah. It's funny. Cause you know, he, <laughs> He'd probably, well, he would be the number one pick if it weren't for that Bedard kid. (laughs) Oh, him. Uh, You know, if if he weren't in the same draft class as Connor Bedard, he's the number one pick in the draft. And I had people over the summer who said to me, if he were in last year's draft as a 17-year-old, he would have been the number one pick in that draft. Like, it's just the, the matter of circumstance, the way it's worked out. But he has been as dynamic a player in all three zones. And that's kind of the thing that the, the freshmen, especially the younger freshmen, I feel like that's where they struggle the most is, yeah, you know, it, it's size and strength a little bit, but it's just figuring out how to be able to be effective in all three zones. As a freshman center, that doesn't happen very often. He came in and there was no adjustment at all. Like, right. he, he was one of the best. One, not only one of the best forwards, but one of the best centers in the nation day one, October 1st, like when, when the season opened, he, uh, you could tell from game one that he was right there. And I don't know that you can contain him, honestly. I mean, I don't know that if Ohio State has the personnel to be able to contain a player like that. And that's not a knock on Ohio State. Not many teams do. So I, I think what you have to do is, is almost figure out, well, how do you neutralize everybody else? And then uh, hope that Fantilli doesn't go off and beat you on his own. That, that almost has to be more of the strategy. Let's try to contain everybody else there, try to make sure all, all the secondary pieces don't do anything, make them rely on just that top line, and then just do the best we can against them and hope that that line doesn't go off for, you know, four goals in the night. Yeah, just don't take penalties, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, that's the other, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, you can't do Yeah, that. don't take penalties. Yeah. What about Hockey East? What intrigues you with, you know, obviously you got, we had games all this week, pushing towards, you know, their semifinals as well. 
I'm intrigued about what happens with Northeastern and what happens with BU because I think each of them relies so hard on certain aspects of their game. Like I saw Northeastern this on the weekend, and I'm like, if it wasn't for Devin Levi, they may have, they 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 could have lost to U- UMass Lowell, right? Like he, he really stood on his head, and they play a running bit of a running gun game there that. I don't know if I, with that personnel, I would want to run that kind of, that kind of game. So I'm intrigued what happens with Northeastern and Levi continues to stand on his head. Then, you know, what is, what does Boston university do as well in terms of how are they going to match up? Cause at the end of the day, in terms of talent, that should be the finals. It should be, but you know, things happen. Be. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting too, because I was saying that about Levi back in, in January, right at the first of the year, our Northeastern's closed the gap a little bit. I think they're 17th in the pairwise now, yeah. just on the outside looking into the tournament, but they were 40th January 1st with some yeah. bad losses. And and I had said to somebody back at that point in the year, I said, look, would it shock you, especially with single elimination, if they get a buy, which they have, would it shock, could Devin Levi steal you three games in a row and, and, and steal a hockey's championship? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. He can't. Yeah, absolutely. He can. Uh, so he's really the difference maker there for Northeastern. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we, we watched it last year. You watched it in the bean pot. You watched it really for the most part, the entire second half when he's playing at his best, which was all of last year and definitely the second half of this year. He's a game changer and, and at the most important position. And it's crazy, too. Like I, I was joking around with somebody over the weekend. I said, I almost feel bad because it's like, well, when, when Devin Levi is on his A game, he could be a game B game he can be. Like, you look at his season numbers, he's one of the best goaltenders in the nation. And it's like, oh, people are going, well, he wasn't the same goalie he was last year when he had a 950 save percentage. It's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, who's going to expect him to repeat that? That's insane. But he's still one of the top goalies in the nation. And if you look at really since the 1st of January, if you look at what he's done down the stretch for Northeastern, He's at like a one and a half goals against and a 950 save percentage. He's back to what he was doing last year, which has got to be scary for, for everybody else in Hockey East and in the country if they're able to get into the tournament. Because, again, when you have the, the best goalie, you have the best player at the most important position, you have a chance to win any game you're in. Thoughts on the ECAC? Regardless of like how the semifinals and stuff play out, is anybody beating Quinnipiac? I don't think so. You know, I mean, you never know, right? Things can happen. Harvard, I think, has the best chance. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really the biggest question is can they handle that that top-end talent again? They're a great defensive team. Like, Quinnipiac's defensive structure is fantastic. They're going to have a job to do if they match up with Harvard at some point in the ECAC tournament because of all the skill they have up front. They've proven over the course of the year that they've been able to match up with those guys and 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 not shut them down, but but neutralize them enough. Just, I feel like if there's one team, though, they can can break through Quinnipiac, it's probably Harvard, probably in a game, though, where they have to outscore them. And when you're playing Quinnipiac, you know, you're trying to get more than two or three goals. Most nights, that's pretty difficult if you look at what they've been able to do over the course of the year. What happens in a CCHA? Like, who comes out of that juggernaut? It's basically, for me, it's just the war of attrition. Like, who's the least injured? Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things like a team that I had picked to, to do well in that tournament at the beginning of the year got eliminated this weekend. And that was Bowling Green. And if you look back, it's it was injuries is what it was. I mean, they they did not have their full lineup once in the entire season. 
they started with guys injured, and as they were getting guys back, other guys were getting injured, uh, and they were eliminated by Ferris over the weekend. Ferris State's played well. I think it's I think it's Michigan State and Minnesota State. I mean, those were the top two teams in the in the standings. Those are the top two teams in the pairwise. Uh, I think those are the two best teams in the league. As far as who's better, right now I don't really know. You know, it's it's hard to say. Minnesota State was was pushed this weekend by Lake Superior, a team that you thought they would have rolled over relatively easily. And and Minnesota State at the same time though looked like the Minnesota State team from last year down the stretch when you look at how they played in February. Uh, I I think it will be those two teams again though. They they were the ones battling for the regular season championship. My guess is that those will be the last two teams standing on on the 18th when we're talking about the conference finals. Okay. Again, I have no idea what's going to happen here. You got Denver, <laughs> you have North Dakota, you have Minnesota Duluth. It's like the Eastern Conference of the NHL. It's like you're running the gauntlet. I don't I have no idea what's going to happen there. Like, I don't know who's going to get up. No, and, and the interesting thing is, which is not what we've become typical of seeing. There's so many of those teams that are fighting for their lives. They're on the outside looking into the pairwise teams that are usually in the top 15, North Dakota and Minnesota Duluth are both fighting for their lives. I mean, there's a, there's a very small chance North Dakota can still get an at-large bid. Although I don't think it's likely it's a very small chance. So North Dakota Duluth, like it's, it's insane how, how, those teams, premier programs who have been in the tournament year after year over the last 10 years, it just it shows a relative strength, I think, of the league and then also the other leagues around the country, the Big Ten, that, that those teams right now are, are in a dogfight for their seasons. And that adds a little bit of a different element to it, I think, too, right? When you have a team like that that knows they're in the tournament, not that they're going to coast, but there's not as much pressure. Now you're going to look at a team like a, like a Duluth or a North Dakota who – has the talent to be in the NCAA tournament, even Duluth. And I know their record doesn't look good, but I mean, they've been one of the most unlucky teams in the country. Uh, they're, they're a talented team, and, and so is North Dakota. And now they're going to play this weekend, I think, about uh, it's going to look like the NCAA tournament to them because they're playing for their lives. They've got to win these games uh, or else their season's over. I think it just adds another element that, that isn't there usually in the NCHC tournament because most of the, there's usually five NCHC teams that are in the tournament. We already know that they're in at this point. Well, Mike, I want to thank you very much for coming to the show. Once again, give us some great insight of college hockey playoffs and look forward to talking to you next week when all some of the death settles. Anyway. Sounds good. Thanks. That's Mike McMahon from the College Hockey News. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, 
the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. We're speaking with Mark Cronin, Executive Director of Silent Ice, in our Game Changers segment. So, Mark, this topic is all about money. So, how does your academy model make it more affordable and accessible for parents and the players? Because as we know, throughout the different academies, there's different price ranges and yours is significantly less in some cases, 50% less. So look, we both understand what we value. We value a reasonable rate of return. So how does that work? How does your model work where you guys can still get a reasonable rate of return, but then still provide an excellent level of service to the parents and, and the players within your academies? Uh, I think it's a really sensitive topic, Shane. Uh, I think everybody knows that playing elite level hockey has become outreach for some families. Uh, most families. Def- most families. Uh, it's it's not really a positive thing. And, uh, you know, we strive to try and bring some of those costs down to parents I think just to level set, when we look at uh, the traditional minor hockey systems pre uh, CSSHL, um, the the costs of minor hockey and let's call it the Alberta Elite Hockey League or those AAA leagues, um, is, is that's kind of where our price point kind of lines up. And then you have this other bump up to what I call borderless hockey. So inside the borderless hockey uh, fee structure, our competition is the CSSHL. So when we look at that, we try to deliver a borderless hockey experience uh, and development program for our athletes and for families that was more in line with the pricing that you would see in traditional minor hockey, but with the, some of the benefits that we see in the academy model. So the question is like, how do you do that? And really it's like, uh, it's a whole bunch of things that you have to do in succession. And I kind of go back to a fundamental a theory from our leadership group from the LaCalle brothers, they actually come out of the manufacturing industry and they're hockey people. And we talk a lot about vertical integration and what are the benefits about vertical integration and controlling everything inside of your supply chain and what are the inputs or the essential inputs that it takes to run an academy. So let's talk about some of those things. Uh, let's start, start off with people, right? And, you know, when you're looking at moving into a model where your coaches, at least one of your coaches on your academy team inside the Junior Prospects Hockey League is a full-time paid employee, um, you know, you need to get full value out of those people. And one of the things we've looked at inside of vertical integration is, is number one, first of all, we do have a feeder system. So we have coaches and people that are coming up through the Hockey Super League, which kind of starts with eight-year-olds and kind of moves up to that 13, 14-year-old age group. And we have people that will move into those type of roles. And then above that, uh, with some of our academies, we have three of our academies now that are directly attached into junior A teams. Uh, 
which is a huge benefit. So when you think about things like skill coaches, you know, if you're paying somebody $200 an hour to come out and do a one-off skill sessions with your group versus actually having that person in-house and not only just servicing one team, like in a minor hockey model where you'd go out there and source right. it for your, for your AAA team um, versus having that person as part of a larger program. So they not only do that for your junior A team, they also do it for your four junior prospects hockey league teams. And on top of that, they're probably involved in our hockey super league uh, technical development programming. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things around the people and doing that. Uh, the other thing around our people is, is that we kind of have a kind of a standard uh, fee structure for all of our coaches across all of our hubs. And again, that's where it's a little bit different. You know, if you're just kind of a one-off business and you've got 12 different businesses that run separately, everybody kind of has a different standard. And we've tried to change that. We try to make it so that there's a standard level for all people. So that, for all of our coaches, and uh, we think there's some great efficiency in that. And then the other thing is, is those coaches, what do they give back? So not only do they, they're paid to do, uh, to run that junior prospects hockey league team, but they also do some of the other support and technical development of our lower leagues in the hockey super league. So that is part of that vertical, vertical integration that helps us keep our costs in line uh, around the people side chain. You know, that's really interesting. So, and it was a conversation I had around a structure of junior hockey set at the CHL level is what I was really interested in is, is having people who have multiple skill sets. So, you know, your assistant coaches and your coach, I think even at the CHL level should be elite level at player development as well, not just coaching, but actually can break down skating and skills properly at, at the same level as it would be at the NHL level so that you have, it's, it's double. You're not just coaching tactics and you're obviously, you know, coaching, you know, the mental emotional side of the game, but I would want, you know, one of my assistant coaches who is highly skilled at player development. And I have another assistant coach, if you can have, who is, has a background in psychology and like, so that there's double in terms of that, just doubling up. So you're not having to have all these other people coming in on these one-offs because at one, I think it's really inefficient and it reduces the number of voices you have in the room as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's why we look at that vertical integration right from the junior level down to the junior prospects hockey league. And then how do you contribute down to the hockey super league with those people? And absolutely. Let's talk about like junior A has been challenged uh, depending upon where you are in Canada, you may be either in a pay for play uh, 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 league, or you may be in a non-paper league like the Alberta Junior Hockey League or the right. ACHL, and it's a huge challenge. And you say, well, you know, how are these teams surviving? Uh, and part of that is is uh, through how they actually support and get corporate sponsorships and and they drive their media. So that's something that we've tried to change to the Junior Prospects Hockey League, which is every single one of our games is televised. Uh, so we have a broadcast crew that goes out there. So think about this: so you're not a, you don't have each team taping the taking video and then breaking that video down. You've got one primary source of video that's done by the league and supplied by the league. So you get professional broadcast things. That's really good for the coaching. So you're talking about the video coaches and using that, the, the software to break down, break down uh, a player's game and some of that right. stuff. So that currently happens, right? It's now. also great for the business model. It's professionally broadcasted. Uh, you can add, you know, that's where you can work with your sponsors in terms of added value to that it helps with in terms of scouting and recruitment not recruitment just players but also having other organizations such as you know western hockey league teams or your ncaa coaches coming to be able to have fully full access to your players 
in that respect. So there's added value all throughout the chain from that respect. Uh, that's exactly where I was going with that chain is. So it's not just the technical side when you have that, but, you know, I look at the type of, you know, our broadcast views, I was watching uh, the JPHL playoffs this weekend. Uh, we have two different hubs going. We, it was being played in Vancouver and Calgary this weekend. And you've got hundreds of viewers watching a single game. And those are the things that if you're going to go and attract a corporate sponsor or corporate partner, uh, that's the things that they're looking for. They're looking to say, well, what kind of exposure do I get when I'm involved? Am I just making a donation? And nobody's into just, you know, writing checks for donations for uh, hockey programs right now. So you have to bring some something else. And the thing about doing it at a league level is, is the consistency level of that broadcast or media feed is always the same. And I think that a sponsor needs to see that. It also leads kind of the next side of it, which is how do you develop those corporate sponsorship and partnerships? So if you're a one-off uh, organization and uh, you want to go, let's say, do a, a deal. Let's talk about hotels, for example. Well, doesn't it make a lot more sense that if you can do a league league wide type of agreement or partnership agreement to get your of hotel course. and your down? Uh, the other one is, is I want to talk about is is equipment costs. Uh, the big one being the the things that break. And you know, I came from the era. Uh, I played with the wood stick. Me too, the Sherwood. Uh, the Sherwood. Uh, yeah, I was more of a Steve Eiserman Louisville guy, but. Um, you know, I, I, I think that sticks have become this thing that, you know, it's, it's really sensitive to talk about it. If you look at the budgets on some NHL teams, uh, I've seen the budgets on CHL team budgets, and I've seen the budgets on some of the junior A team budgets. So I assume that if you're playing 40 games, 50 games a year, that you're going to break as many sticks whether you're playing junior A or you're playing the junior prospects hockey league. So that currently, I mean, you look at it, if you're a parent in a traditional like minor hockey program or uh, you, you, you go to the store, you go to pro hockey life or wherever, and you buy your sticks. And, you know, if you can show me a stick that's these guys are using there, $250, it's, it's rare. We now stick season sticks in the $400 range, which I just find absolutely absurd. Uh, the JPHL has done an agreement with CCM and we're able to provide sticks to our players across because we have a league deal. And this is one of the benefits of being able to broadcast to do league league wide vertical integration, even with your suppliers, you know, our stick costs to our players are half or less than half. And, um, we think it's a great advantage to parents. Parents will have to purchase those sticks. So it's not, not like in junior A where those sticks are provided for you, but at least to provide some sort of uh, a little bit cost of a break, certainty. cost certainty and, it was interesting when we launched the program, I got multiple inquiries about it. And unfortunately I wasn't really involved in putting the program together and you just tell that there was a demand for it. And, you know, I think that's a big part of it. It's, you know, how do we make it accessible? The other one I talk about then another essential input is your ice costs, Shane. And, you know, premium ice costs are after four o'clock, four thirty. Uh, ice costs between those prime times, four till 10. Uh, we use dark ice. Um, most of our teams hit the ice anywhere between 8.30 and 9 a.m. every morning. Uh, that is your probably your best cost model for uh, purchasing ice or ice contracts. And again, kind of looking at that vertical integration, if you're part of, if our, if our hub is part of a junior A program, uh, we're picking up some of the additional benefits. We're kind of tagging on to some of those existing ice contracts with the junior A teams, bringing it down to the junior prospects hockey league. And again, taking our costs down. So it's essentially what we've been doing is we look at every input that goes into our cost model and see how we can optimize it, minimize it, 
uh, leverage it to bring in either another revenue store, such as what I brought up our media things. So yeah, it costs money to run your broadcast, but if you can offset that and accelerate it through corporate sponsorship and advertising, I, I think that's the way to go. And then, and then who ends up benefit that then takes your price down, you know, from that 25 to $50,000 to play in the CSSHL down into that 12,500 to $15,000 model inside the junior prospects hockey league. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, you treat the league, as you were as an entrepreneur in a fortune 500 company and you have to be as efficient as you possibly can to provide value back to everybody. Like every component has to have multiple streams of value to multiple stakeholders. Otherwise you're not doing it correctly. You know, it has to touch all these different points. You know, I think about when I came out of university and I first entered, you know, into the sports system and, you know, I always say I, would, I had a university degree and I was really well qualified to be a, a, a non-paid volunteer uh, or being the high, best qualified volunteer at the yeah. place. And, and the games change a lot. You know, um, back then, you know, you, you probably could play midget hockey for $1,500, $2,000. And, yeah. you know, and that's just not the case right now. And so we're trying to find that balance. And I'm not saying that we're all the way there yet, but I, I think we're on the right path. And, and the way the next move is, is like, how do we now take that kind of that reach and that media kind of package and how do we bring in better and, and more corporate sponsors? Uh, we look at, you know, Hockey Canada, we look at all the corporate sponsors that they had and currently are on hold with and where those pro where, how that kind of works the challenge i have with that is if you actually look inside the hockey canada's annual uh, inside their books uh what they actually drive back into grassroots development is a, is less a single digit percentage they put more into their their elite programs than they do into their entire grassroots budget and so those dollars as much as they're advertising and saying well it's all about hockey and play hockey it's really being directed at those elite elite programs and you know, we think there's some sort of balance there that we can work with corporate sponsors to become part of this new movement and an alternative for families. And we definitely think we're heading in the right direction right now. I agree. Mark, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate the insight and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for the time. That's Mark Kronick. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics outside edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players outside edge hockey development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity our strength 
Skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Inside Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Have to bring on Dave Poulin once again for our Behind the Curtain segment. And Dave, this week's topic is the value of statistics and analytics when evaluating prospects. Now, that is a tumble, that big yarn bundled up. Um, and how do we untangle that? And I've been trying to work on it for the last 15 years. And sometimes I do, uh, I use a lot of colorful metaphors at my computer, trying to figure that out and then going back out into the rinks and watching and trying to take that information of what I've learned, you know, over the last, you know, 2000 games I've approximately scouted live is just trying to figure out what's valuable. How do I weight it? What's the context? What's the nuance? Like, because if you just simply stared at uh, a bunch of statistics and try to weight them based on it, almost a guess, it's just, it becomes very challenging and it is a disservice also to your scouting staff because that then there's a sort of a miscommunication between what's really going on and what the production is. It is a real challenge. It's a challenge to integrate analytics at one level, at the National Hockey League level, you get a lot of conversation about the integration and comparisons from player to player. But before we even get to the analytics part, just think of the comparison of the respective leagues around the world that you're scouting from. And as I've mentioned on this show before, one of the most fascinating things for me was to sit in the amateur meetings and watch the merging of the lists. So you're merging lists from respective countries, from Finland, Sweden, Norway, um, you know, all across Europe and then across Canada, you're merging, yeah, you start with the major junior leagues and then you go down to tier two, you're merging those lists, you're merging across North America, the USHL, the North American Hockey League, the respective prep school leagues. And it's so hard to make comparisons. I mean, one league is playing 80 games, one league is playing 26 games. And, you know, I, I remember it was emblazoned into my mind one night in Minnesota watching the Holy Angels high school team play. And I like this little defenseman. He was a ninth grader. He was like five foot four. Mikey Riley. Yeah. <laughs> it was, okay. But the centerman on the other team was Nick Bugston. Mike Riley was a freshman who rarely played high school, you know, varsity. And Nick Bjergstad was a senior. So you were watching a 6-3, 6-4 centerman against a 5-4 defenseman. So think of the relative challenge of doing that. And you're trying to evaluate, well, you think Nick Bjergstad should be really good against a 5-4 freshman defenseman. So now introduce analytics. And, you know, I think they have to be very, very basic. They can't be sophisticated. You know, you're not going to look at slot passes in the USHL versus slot passes for a 17-year-old who's playing in the Liga in Finland 
right. and playing against men that are 35 years old and saying, okay, well, those aren't relative things. The prep schools where a lot of very talented kids come out of got harder and harder with the advent of the USHL. Because what happened was when I started the college game in 95, a lot of kids went five years to prep school. They, they did a PG year, postgraduate year. So you had the quality of all these kids doing a fifth year of high school. And they're, of course, playing against the sophomores and the juniors and, and the seniors. So they're upping the quality of the league. Then the USHL started and they started pulling those players out and saying, why would you pay for another year of prep school? Come and develop against older, more qualified kids. And it'll be better for your development and it'll be all about hockey and you'll get a better sense of where your son is. But then those sophomores and juniors lost the spirit of competition in the prep schools because those kids had all moved on to the USHL. And then the question was, when you went to the USHL, did you become a fourth line player instead of a first line player in prep school? So all these different things now introduce analytics and say, they have to be very, very basic chain for me to say, I could compare zone entries you know in the swedish elite league for a 16 year old who was playing for froland and playing up you know against against joe lundfist who's right. 41 years old <laughs> saying how does that compare so the comparison part is the hard the hardest part and that's why your top scouts cross over that's why they cross into the other leagues so they're not just locked in and watching the ohl and even within Canada, they take the Q, the OHL, and WHL. Those are very different leagues. And, you know, and you're watching teams play, and depending on the strength that year, sometimes, you know, one league is that much stronger this year simply because of the age and cycle of their kids and the quality of the kids available. So it's a real challenge. And to break it down to an analytics part and even – the simplest statistics, goals and assists are hard to, to, to really quantify because you'll look at the first round and you'll say, okay, well, you know, he had six goals and four assists. And I'd say, yeah, and he was playing in, in you know, the DEL. Like, you know, Timmy Stutzler puts up almost a point a game in the DEL playing as a 17-year-old. That's a very noticeable statistic. It's, you know, that's the basic of analytics is the statistics and goals and assists and points and the role that he plays. And so it's a, it's a real challenge without a question to drill down. And you have to have guys who've watched, I know you and I have chatted off there about your analytics, people getting out and seeing games and understanding the different levels of competition, understanding what a scout does when he walks in, grabs a coffee, sits down in a freezing cold building, and there's only nine other people in the building and you're watching one guy. Yeah, and, and that's a real challenge. It's a real art, particularly, you know, take you to an extreme. Mark Jankowski playing prep school hockey in Ontario, in, you know, playing exactly coming into Ontario with the Quebec team. Like, how do you evaluate? Like, I went to a game at Upper Canada College and watched him play. I was like, how do you figure this out? Like, how do you go about figuring this out? He went in the first round eventually because he was so dominant in that league. And that's why these showcases started. And, and to back up to Minnesota, it was really hard 
initially to get reads off guys in the iron range playing for a war road and because they'd have one big game a month. Yeah. You know, they were so dominant. Some of these kids of Brock Nelson. And so that's when they brought in, you know, the advent of pre and post high school hockey, they would have, you know, a tournament in the league, because if you want to stay and play for your high school and you played in Grand Rapids up in the iron range or international falls or war road, you simply didn't have the level of competition to really get a true judgment. And that, and, and that we're not even introducing biometrics. We're not introducing the psychological components. We're not, you know, there's also the consideration if it's a player who is going to be going to college hockey. So what college team is he going to? What type of system do they play? What's the coaching staff? What's their development record, right? All those factors you have to consider if you're going to draft a player, because once you draft them, they're immediately not jumping in the NHL, right? So you're integrating all that type of detail into, and then you have, you know, you should be adding your player development department into that conversation, your human performance department into that conversation. So it, it's a myriad of data. Like I know some people think data is just numbers, but you have qualitative data as well. And all the interview process you have with all that information around that player in terms of their billets and coaches and teachers. And, you know, I always found security guards were a great, um, bevy of information right because they see and hear everything so you know that's why shane that the the world juniors and the u18s become so important because now you're seeing best against best and that's why a lot of decisions are made around those high quality tournaments well the unfortunate thing is some of the kids aren't in a position to get to try out for that team or play for that team and that's why the national development program met so much criticism particularly early because wait a second you're going to decide who are the best you know 23 16 year olds in the country and then that's going to funnel up and you're going to give them the best opportunity the best coaching the best training the best competition well of course they're going to get better yeah and you know someone would be penalized for staying behind and playing in their their high school in nina wisconsin because they chose to do that and that was in their best interest it's an unbelievably challenging I used to talk about this a lot with the basketball coaches at Notre Dame because theirs was a pretty level platform coming out. You know, granted, the the high school leagues were different, but at least they were all playing high school basketball. They weren't playing for club teams or, you know, traveling to play mostly. And and so you knew there were strong leagues and it was just a seemed to be an easier. And they still based a lot of their decisions off the summer showcases and you know, the Adidas camp or the Nikes camp or the respective camps that showcase the best players. Dave, I want to thank you very much. Uh, great insight on this topic. We could probably do five or more segments just on that alone. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio. If you missed the broadcast, you can listen to it on your favorite podcast network or the Sirius XM app. And thank you to all our guests. And we will see you at the rink. <laughs>